Welcome to the Fruitful and Fearless podcast, where we're serving up gospel-fueled courage to the Christian woman to remain faithful in her calling. Hey everybody, welcome to the Fruitful and Fearless podcast. I'm here today with two special guests. So Jared is with me today and we are talking to Ian Garris. So we met Ian sometime early spring-ish yeah. uh, when we went to Springfield to for the Christendom conference. And Jared spoke at that and it was an amazing conference. And Ian was one of the speakers as well. And what was your session title? Oh, I think my session was titled uh, Fighting Statism One Plate at a Time. And it was super fascinating. And whenever I was listening, I was like, we've got to have him on the Fruitful and Fearless podcast because we love all things food and kitchen science and all that kind of stuff. So I know that you guys are going to love this interview. Jared, What? Was, and then you did a really cool one too. What was your well, uh, speech that you did? I forget exactly. It was on medical tyranny, but if anybody- Block, One blocked shot at a time. One blocked shot at a time. But Joshua, everybody and Brandon, everybody and Daniel, the whole Hope crew out there, you guys did such a great job. That conference was phenomenal. In fact, we should put, we'll put links in there and you guys definitely need to listen to Ian's talk and, uh, and everybody's talk from that conference. It was just a, it was just really good stuff. It was really fun. And then Ian also made an awesome lunch for everybody that came to the conference. Tell everybody the menu for that lunch. Cause it was phenomenal. Oh goodness. Yeah. Um, let's see what we did. Uh, we did tacos and burrito bowls, but the uh, I think the highlight was uh, it was a couple of my lambs. Uh, so we had uh, the asado, tomate, did pretty good. Everyone that helped make them, and part for, part for the course with me. Uh, anytime I cook for a crew, I always overdo it, and uh, you know no matter how hard I worked through the math, mm-hmm. I figured I was cooking for two hundred people. I think we ended up with food for about 350. Yeah. Uh, so we, the church, the church ate on that for a couple Sundays afterwards. That's awesome. Nice. I'm sure they were not disappointed about that. It was really delicious. So. It was. Okay, Ian, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Certainly. Yeah. So my name is Ian. Uh, me and my wife, Ariel, we've got three kids, Thomas, Matthew, and Phoebe uh, from seven years to seven months. Uh, we're we're members of a, a small, wonderful you know, Reformed Baptist church, like Jared mentioned earlier, uh, down here in Springfield, Missouri, called Hope Baptist. And as long as Ariel and I have been married, we've been farming uh, on a small scale. Uh, some years, probably pretending more than actually producing, but certainly in the last three, four, five years, producing at a at a nice scale on our small thirty-five acre farm, uh, just north of Springfield, in a town called. Paragrove. So that is, that's what keeps us busy uh, between the kids and the farm. That's about what we're doing all the time. That's awesome. You said pretending and it reminded me our friend Scott, did you think of that same quote when he was saying that? No, what well, our, I forgot. our friend Scott says the first generation live action role plays LARPs their way through things. And then oh, the yeah. second generation is actually, <laughs> that's their real life. So yeah, we're Absolutely. LARPing through some stuff <laughs> so that our kids will find it second nature, but that's awesome. So we're just going to jump right in. Uh, The first question that I sent you was about cultural ethics and just no matter where you're looking right now in our time, it seems that the ethics and morals of our generation are disintegrating, whether it's at Target or up to the president, just everywhere you look. So Mm -hmm. how is that affecting our food? How, where is the, where is the connection between disintegrating cultural ethics and then our food standards that have so declined over the past hundred years? Yeah, that's it's a really, really big topic. So I, I came up with uh, at least four points to get us started. Um, and certainly um, I'm sure someone could write a book on this. Uh, this well, the there you go. Ian, get, get to work. Yeah, on that, get, that book. I, yeah, I would read that book. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, first, first we have to back up and try to figure out how we got to where we are. And it's my opinion that Really, it, in the last, you know, 60, 70 years, maybe since the end of World War II, we started down this path of cheap and easy food. Uh, so after World War II, we had this post-war feminism start to rise up. We had uh, our children were in school, public school system, mainstream adoption right around this time. We had our women who had kept industry and agricultural 
enterprises going during World War II are now returning to work in droves. And then we've got uh, our men just uh, indebted uh, to banks and for automobiles and for homes, having to slave away at corporate jobs in the cities all the time. And what that demanded was cheap and easy food. If, if you turn the home from something that's productive and has its own economy into basically just a hotel room you know, with a television, hmm. uh, you're going to have to have cheap, easy, unhealthy food. And I think what I like to remind people of uh, as often as I can is maybe just about 100 years ago, anyone in the world spent half of their waking hours or half of their money on food. So you either woke up and labored all day to get things to grow out of the ground, or you labored to keep your uh, livestock living, um, or you were working in some other industry and half or more of your money was going to food. Wow. And we have just totally lost that. And now certainly what I'm not saying is that that's necessarily ideal. Um, I, I love that we live in a, in a world where God has afforded us many freedoms and many uh, just through his grace has given us lives where I don't have to worry about my food in that same sense, right? I'm, I'm not having to spend half of my money on food. Um, but certainly that there's, there's something there to kind of chew on and to think about. Um, it, we, we also have a lack of hospitality and, and this one's kind of a jump, but I, I think, I think people will track with me here. So because we're in this postmodern era, we have all these luxuries and we have this abundance of wealth, it's become really easy for us to look at hospitality, this love of stranger and love of neighbor as something that we can just buy away. We can just give money to this thing and it'll go away. Whereas good, true hospitality is, it's really opening up our home. It's preparing food for people. It's taking meals to postpartum mamas and sick people and, and, and things of that sort. And uh, we've lost this, this uh, proclivity to look at hospitality as something that is centered around food, centered around the table. Um, and because we're not, because we don't value food the same way that we used to, we don't use it in our hospitality. Uh, then, you know, we've also got kind of this concentration towards cities and urban areas. Um, people have, have fled rural areas in droves. And when you leave land, you leave behind your ability to produce food, whether that's right. uh, livestock or crops. And uh, by fleeing to these cities, again, to my original point, because we're after the best schools for our kids or our wives are going to go to work or husbands have to go, you know, work in some high rise for a financial institution or something. It's it, it just follows that these people would flee to cities. And whenever you flee to cities now, you are beholden to this food supply chain and mm. you must have things like refrigeration and trucking and transportation and warehouses all in order to get your food to you because you've removed yourself from where the food comes from. But I, I all of these things included, I think it really, it comes back to this, this concept I've been kind of mulling over. Uh, and it's that, you know, we, we look at God's judgment and it's many different manifestations throughout the scripture. And uh, we notice that it, God is not changing. He's the same. He will very often use the same sorts of judgment on people today as he would have back when the scriptures were written. Hmm. And I come back to Leviticus 18, where he is warning his people against these sexual sins of the previous occupants of their land. And these sins that they're being warned against is adultery. It's homosexuality and abortion all included in this category of sexual sin outlined in Leviticus 18 that ends with the warning that they will be spewed out from the land like those before them. And I think we're experiencing something very similar today. Uh, maybe not necessarily feeling, you know, spewed out of a certain place. Um, of course, that still happens around the world, but I've never felt that. But we are experiencing things like adverse uh, trends in the climate. Mm -hmm. I think that this is actually where that climate conversation needs to happen. 
it actually needs to be looked at as God's judgment. Hmm. And it's not, it's not judgment for combustion engines or, or cow farts or whatever they're going to push on this <laughs> right? It's, it, it's our sin. It's those things. And, and I don't know about you guys, you guys are, you know, your area, you've probably been able to see it change over the years, but for, you know, in my area, whenever I grew up here, I, I used to see snow, right? We used to get feet of snow. Now we don't get snow. We get ice storms that wipe out power for two or three weeks and kill people. Uh, Summers used to get to a hundred degrees, 102 degrees. And uh, but now we'll get to 110, 111 with 90% humidity. Uh, You know, I, I also, again, maybe a bit of a stretch, but bear with me. I also look at the rise in intolerances, dietary restrictions, like gluten and lactose, right? I look at those as being a result of, of sin and, and ultimately God's judgment. Imagine being somebody a hundred years ago and telling them, hey, in a hundred years, 10, 20, 30% of the population won't be able to drink milk or eat bread. Yeah, they, right. they would think that was an absurd claim. And I, and I look at that and I say that can only come from, from in the form of judgment. That is a form of judgment. So because of the degradation of, of our culture, and are moving away from food, but also just generally our cultural sins, I think that we're seeing a lot of these food issues uh, in the wrong light when we should be thinking of them as judgment and, mm. and resulting in something that needs to be repented of. Right. And definitely consequences for actions that have happened. I, it was even making me think of the sourdough class that I taught for our church. So they date sourdough back to like ancient Egypt, basically. And it was, that was the way that bread was leavened up until basically the industrial revolution. Whenever women left the home, there was no longer time for them to stand. And every, every 30 minutes for about three hours, then another three hour rest period. And then uh, shaping your loaves and then putting them in the oven to bake that just, there wasn't time for that in a day to bake your bread. And so then hence bunny bread and all the, all the convenience breads that there are today and quick yeast and things and just the consequences of losing the probiotics that were in your bread or prebiotics that were in your bread and how that has effect Mm -hmm. on your body and your health. So, yeah, I think that's definitely an interesting point to make. That's exactly right. Because there's parody in, in our food, right? It's, it's all commensurate, right? If you put a little effort into it, you'll get a little effort out of it. You know, if it's something like sourdough that you have to work through, you know, sometimes these starters for years and years, right? Right. Think of all the energy and the the care you're putting into that. It's commensurate with the quality of the product that you get right? and the value and the benefit of that product. And and like you said, we're, we don't have those prebiotics and probiotics and things coming out of our food because we're just churning and burning and getting things out as fast as we can. But if it was like a loaf of bread that you spent all morning on, uh, how how commensurate it is the the nutritional value and just the overall quality of that loaf of bread would be it's all commensurate there's parity in all of this food yeah it's interesting as i'm hearing you both talk and talking about convenient foods and from world world tree forward thinking about the value of you know the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and the value of multiple incomes in the home and the sacrifice of some of the things you're talking about here then is things like, okay, food quality and things like mm-hmm. time around the table, things like the value of putting your hands to work to make the food mm-hmm. and letting somebody else do that because we've not seen that as valuable rather than seeing, seeing the value in it. We're just like, hey, give, us, give me two incomes. And typically, right. you know, a lot of that is, hey, we mm-hmm. want money. We want the things that, that we couldn't afford before. You know, what ends up being sacrificed is things like we're, we're talking about. It, it is crazy to see how many how many food intolerances, how fat America is. And it seems like all these things are interconnected. Yeah. So now the trend is fake meat. And you talked a little bit about this at the conference. I thought was really interesting. So why is a worldview behind fake meat something that Christians shouldn't be down with? Why does it matter? Why do we care about the fake meat? That's that's a great point because uh, we, we know, first of all, right, that Christ declared all foods clean. Right. So why, why as Christians should we have an apprehension towards something? It's, it, that's a theological thing we've got to work through with, with this whole conversation, whether we're talking about, you know, a loaf of Wonder Bread or whether we're talking about something like this fake meat. Um, so it, the way I like to talk about this is, is to lay the, uh, the history 
fake me out a little bit. And so I'll briefly do that. So it fake me has kind of had, uh, we'll, we'll say four phases. Um, the first phase was really just, and when we say fake meat, uh, allow for a moment, you know, we can even put fake dairy in here, right? Soy milk and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, but just fake proteins, fake fats, things that are typically animal-based, but now we're moving towards plant-based. That's what we're getting at here. So the first phase was really like tofu, right? It wasn't, tofu's not pretending to be meat. Uh, it just simply was a substitute, you know, and sometimes it's culturally appropriate or appropriate to the dish or whatever. I'm not a fan personally, but I see that it has its place in cuisines around the world and that's, that's fine. Right. But then people took that and eventually came out with a product in its second phase called Tofurky. And mm -hmm. I'm sure some listeners will remember that, right. It's mm -hmm. so Tofurky was just this, awful abomination it was just a lot of <laughs> that was pits of hell no absolutely it was uh, just spray painted brown uh some some added flavors and amino acids that kind of it, it was it's just bad right it, it was trying to pretend to be turkey but it wasn't fooling anyone well then entered the third phase right and this is when uh it started to get you know weird and there's lots of scuttle about it because it was going mainstream this is like you got your morning star veggie nuggets, or you've got your impossible Whopper. Like all of a sudden we had plant-based proteins that were really starting to look and taste and smell and feel like the real thing. You know, there most people remember just the internet craze over Burger King's impossible Whopper. And then of course the subsequent fallout when people finally got a hold of the ingredient list and saw the 25,000 things that went into it. <laughs> and, uh, but, but it was still really an interesting cultural moment as it relates to food, because this was the first time we had a plant-based meat alternative that felt like the real thing started to feel more like the real thing, but pretty, pretty unhealthy. Um, and takes a lot of money to produce. Well, enter now the, what I'm calling the fourth phase, and this is the era of cultured meat, lab-grown meat. And now this stuff, just, just from a purely engineering kind of scientific progress standpoint, it's actually really neat what they're able to do. Uh, I'll, I'll highlight, though, after I explain it, I'll, I'll tell you why concerned and, and skeptical for this, this movement. But essentially what they're doing is taking these large, high-purity, multi-million dollar bioreactors and they're pumping them full of of you know different plant-based sugars and oils and things and then they're inoculating them uh, with uh, some fungus and with high pressure high heat they come back the next morning and they've turned a couple tankers of syrup and oil into a couple thousand pounds of mycelium mm. and they can take that mycelium and run it through some uh, simple mechanical processes that turn it into steaks. And I mean, you get things that look like real chicken breasts at the other end or look like steaks at the other end, even down to they'll, they'll bleed, they'll brown on the grill and they'll still be a little red or pink in the middle. They will, uh, they've got, you know, alter, uh, alterating striations of fat and muscle fibers, you know, running through these things. It's just what they're able to do is actually really neat. Hmm. Now, the reason I'm skeptical of this is it's actually the ethos behind it. I mean, the, the owners and founders of these companies are on the record saying they are here absolutely definitively to put an end to animal agriculture. They want to make it illegal. They want to make it non-economically viable to raise livestock. And they want to take away that, that freedom because uh, you know, I can certainly, I've got some grass out here. I can run a sheep or a cow and be self-sufficient in that way. I, I can't start a bioreactor out in the garage to make my own fake meat. That's just, that's not attainable. And if, if, uh, if the government's walking around at the behest of these corporations and, and making it nearly impossible to have livestock uh, and taking it away from people, then now they've taken away that ability to, to be self-sufficient and, uh, and made us slaves and indentured to this cultured meat industry. And now maybe that's a bit of an extreme speculation, but certainly the, they are culturally formative. I mean, mm. restaurants by the droves are, are adopting this or bringing it to the table, putting it on the menu. And now here's 
maybe one of the other interesting things about it is that it's totally not economically viable. You're not seeing this stuff in the grocery store shelf. When you do find it in a restaurant, you know, it's maybe a couple more dollars than the meat version. Uh, but quarter over quarter, these industries are bringing in, you know, anywhere from a quarter billion dollars to one and a half billion dollars in funding nonstop, wow. even while there's no market available to it. Mm -hmm. And so naturally that makes one suspect of just the whole movement. Why is, why is so much money being dumped into this thing? And I, I think what it is, it's, it's a continued effort to just to take us away from agriculture, mm -hmm. uh, leave it to the technocrats, the people who have the automated GPS driven tractors so that we can make everything out of corn, make everything out of wheat, what have you. And, uh, but now again, I, I always have to, I want to try to be balanced. And, and I like to say when talking about fake meat, I can imagine a few scenarios where this, it makes a tremendous amount of sense. For example, you know, we've got, I don't know how popular it actually is. The internet makes, seems to make things, you know, worse problem than they actually are, but we've got the, uh, the ticks, uh, that, you know, the Lone Star tick, I think it is bites people. And then they've got a, an allergy towards pork or beef or whatever it is. I'm not sure if you've heard of that. Yeah. If, if I were bit by one of those ticks, I, I would love to have a mushroom-based steak as, a, as an alternative as opposed to, you know, something made out of, you know, the Impossible Whopper or something right, like that. Right. Or, or I imagine, uh, you know, let's say countries torn by war or famine. You know, if, what if, what if in addition to the Red Cross, you know, their, their super large aircraft carrier hospital that floats around and, and goes and provides relief. What if we had another ship that rolled up behind them and started pumping out, you know, protein while, while they were in the middle of civil war or famine, whatever. I can think of instances where I want these things to be developed. I would, I would love to see it furthered, but I don't want it to be furthered by our elites and our politicians. That's, yeah, that's right. why I get concerned about it. Yeah, quick question for you, because it seems like there's always nefarious purposes behind the scenes going on or, or like a bait and switch going on. And I'm curious as to your thoughts, like when I started hunting, I was shocked, encouraged the fact that hunters and shooters really care about animal species. They care about management of particular animal groups and they care more about that than they care about the individual animal pain. So they care more about the white tail right. deer, deer, deer population from county to county than they do about taking one deer out and filling their freezer with it. What do you think a motive is then in moving away from moving away from animal husbandry, farming, that sort of thing? What do you think the push is? Because how are they going to regulate the animals? What, what do they plan on doing with them? Uh, what do you think the purposes are behind it? You know, that's that's a good question because we're the the means are all pretty transparent, right? We see all these plays being run on us. We see all the tools coming out of the toolbox as it relates to control or the, the food chain and, and things like that. But it's so hard to pinpoint what the ends are, right? We see the means, but we don't know what the ends are. And as it relates to animal agriculture, I think the bent towards it or, or against it rather is that it, it really could be climate change. I think that really could be their primary driver, their primary concern. So uh, mm -hmm. think of it, I think of it this way. Um, uh, frequently I come back to World War II because so much of the world changed at that, that point in time. Um, so in, in the UK specifically in that region, um, they around that time, for, oh, maybe for 10 years leading up to the point of World War II had actually become uh, uh, dependent on the global food supply chain. Prior to that, the nation was, was independent. They produced all their own food and, and so, but now they were dependent on all these imports. But one thing that they still were good at was producing livestock. They had a booming dairy industry, booming pork industry. And whenever the war came around, we had, we had a huge demand for food just globally. And England, of course, they wanted to take care of their troops. And, uh, we needed caloric, calorically dense, shelf-stable food to send off to war. And what happened was the government actually stepped in and forced, literally forced everyone. Uh, it's a remarkable story of government tyranny that would be would be great to get into at some other point. They forced farms to 
to slaughter their animals. Well, really, they had to give their animals over to the government to be slaughtered and then packaged into you know, MREs and sent all over. And then everyone was forced to turn all their pasture land into arable cropland. Hmm. So, so land that was not suitable for crops still had to be turned into crops. And just about every year for six or seven years, the demand was doubled, doubled, doubled. And uh, so they were having to take rocky soil and hilly soil and clay ridden soil, things that were really only good for grazing. And they had to start disking them up and and tilling them up and planting because the in the process of feeding those grains to animals, you lose a lot of the calories naturally. And so rather than uh, losing those calories as you're trying to get that energy source to the armies or to the, the people that need it, take out the animal and now we're just getting all of the calories out of the grain directly to the people. So I, I look at that just as an example, as a story. And I try to think, well, why would they hate animals? And I think certainly I think the elites, if they truly believe that we're, we're at this precipice in this moment where all society could collapse and we could have massive famines, if they really believe that, and I think many of them do, it would make sense that they want to cut the animals out. Like, let's, let's put off this massive, uh, catastrophic global human catastrophe off a little bit farther. Let's put it off another couple of years and let's just get everyone over to a plant-based diet because certainly as far as putting seed in the ground and getting calories off of it, plants could make a lot more sense. Again, there's a lot more to unpack there and and I don't want to belabor that point, but I think they really, their their idea is that we have to get people over to a plant-based diet. We've got to cut animals out of this whole process because we can manage it better. We can do better than the animals to manage it. We can ensure that people get the calories they need, this, that, and the other. Again, it's, it's a weird topic. It's, it's hard to really pinpoint what their end goal is, but I truly think they're looking at this world thinking if, if we sanitize it of these animals, if we just interject ourselves, you know, almighty man, if we interject ourselves into these natural processes that God has established in the world, we can make it do better we can do better with it. So I, right. I think that's what their bent is against animal agriculture. It's interesting to me how easily society can be duped into believing that manufactured products are healthier than what God has created naturally, whether it be like formula, thinking that like formula is way more healthy for a baby than just breastfeeding or like the fake meat or margarine, like all these different campaigns throughout the generations of forgo the natural way that God created something. Trust us. Let me take it out of your hands. Depend on me for this manufactured item. It's better for you. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think uh, lately there's been a lot of fear surrounding like supply chain issues, warehouse fires, food shortages and all that. So I think a lot of Christians are wanting to be more responsible for where their food comes from Mm -hmm. and wanting to be more self-reliant or even tribe reliant. Like we have some ideas for our church of like a co-op of things that everyone's producing, but what are some ways that we can have a positive vision for that? Some ideas for Christians? I I guess where I would start is reminding all the listeners that everyone is an agrarian, right? No matter where you find yourself circumstantially, where you're, if you live in a city or if you live in the West Texas where nothing grows, wherever you are, you're still an agrarian because you participate in this agriculturally based uh, uh, society and economy. So if you're going to participate in it, participate in it wittingly and knowingly and responsibly. So, but now I, I am really skeptical that anyone kind of in our camp uh, needs to hear that, right? That probably most people are trying something and, and have some chickens or have a small garden this year, you know, even a balcony garden if they live in an apartment. Um, so I, I guess then the second thing I would say is to warn people first of the myth of total self-reliance so because because the pendulum swings right the pendulum swing one way for the boomers and they were all in on the tv dinners and and you know processed food and things that made life easier and now the pendulum has swung far the other direction and we've got lots of people fleeing out to the to the countryside and 
start getting chickens and getting gardens. And I, that's great. And I don't want to discourage anyone from doing that, but I want to first warn people of just the myth of self-sufficiency. Um, I'm, I'm sure everyone could point me to an exception, you know, some YouTube farm that's totally self-fed, so self-provided or whatever, but that exception just proves the rule. Um, we, we do depend on a supply chain. There is presently, there is no way around that. You know, those, all these modern livestock breeds that we have are designed and engineered to, to operate really, really well on, on grains. You know, I mentioned the World War II example earlier. That's uh, about the mass killing of, of all these animals. That's, that's why we don't have all these heritage breeds, or that's why heritage breeds are what they are, because mm. these were the agricultural mainstays of, of 70 years ago, but they culled all of them to make room for the grain. So we've lost all these genetically robust and diverse breeds that perform really well on grain. Well, why do I say that? Well, if you're going to get into chickens, if you're going to get into sheep or, or I guess pigs, you depend on the grain supply chain. Mm. And until some Christians rise up and shape that space and work, you know, one of my hopes is that one of my sons would really seize on uh, the chickens, for example, and that they might dedicate their lives to uh, propagating and developing the next genetically robust and diverse line of meat chickens that pasture well, that forage well, that don't need, you know, 95% of their diet coming from corn and soy. Uh, they forage aggressively and reproduce and are disease resistant. You know, that's, that's what I hope we can get to, but presently we're not there. We probably need 50 years to get to that point. So right now we're dependent on the supply chain. Mm -hmm. So, um, and so, after, you know, again, hoping, I'm not hoping to discourage anyone, um, but you can use agriculture and an agrarian lifestyle to, to build up your community around you and to be a blessing to those around you and to provide to people around you. Um, I, I call this the burden of abundance. You know, usually if you grow tomatoes, right, everyone always has just the crazy tomato lady in, in their church every summer <laughs> who around August just starts bringing on because she can't for the life of her. There's not enough jars in the world to put all these tomatoes in. So, I want to be that. Yeah. That's my right. aspiration of life. wants to be the tomato lady. <laughs> yeah, that's, and that's, and, and we feel a little bit of that way right now with the the, the eggs, right? We've, we've got eggs coming out of our ears. So our pigs now are getting all of our eggs essentially, because we've got, you know, 10 dozen a day and we just don't know what wow. to do with them or, or uh, another, you know, just thinking about that community, right. And the dependence on a community or a tribe or a people or a church um, to do these agricultural things. There is no way I could, uh, well, at, at least no way I could do it safely and without injury and enjoy myself there's no way I could butcher a pig or a steer by myself. I need my neighbors to do that, mm -hmm. right? It used to be that whenever it was, it was time to slaughter a pig, you called in everyone and it was a big party and beers were going around and there was a fire going and wives and kids were all in the kitchen having a good time and all the men were outside processing this pig and then taking the quarters in the house and the women were all cutting it up and wrapping and getting it into the, the freezer. You know, we need a community uh, to do a lot of what we want to do agriculturally. So, uh, you know, and, and we've got a bit of this going on, and, and I know you guys do as well, but just that tribal support, that church support in your own context. So we've, we've got a good number of people uh, contributing to food production in some way. Um, and then those who aren't contributing in that sense, they're contributing in the sense that they're consumers. They are our customers. Mm. And my biggest customer base is actually coming out of my church. Awesome. And so we've got, we've got a family with a small dairy operation. Uh, we've got families with rabbits. We've got even more families with eggs, you know, egg layers. And, you know, we, we do just about everything here. Um, but, but, uh, we've even got people who can't participate in actual growing or producing of things, but we have people that are actually investing, not just by being a customer, but literally investing sums of money and subsidizing some of these operations because they want to see our tribe, our church, 
to be stable and secure. So we have money getting pumped into putting up a bunch of corn or a bunch of wheat so that we have extra animal feed in case it's hard to come by next year. Mm, wow. uh, so, and, and this works because nobody can do everything. Like as much as we do here, we still, I would never do dairy because my wife and kids have a, have a casein allergy. So I would never mess around with dairy, but thankfully our church has somebody that is willing to do it. Uh, we've also switched our garden over from produce. We've got a little bit of produce coming out of it now, but we mostly switched it over to flowers just because at our scale, we can't, we can't make the labor make sense, right? The gardens take a lot of energy and you don't get a whole lot of calories back out of it. So instead, I would rather personally support someone who is operating at a scale where they can be profitable and I'll just give them my money and they can give me all their tomatoes and, and what have you. So uh, that's, that's just how the economics of it work. Again, you just, you need people around you. Uh, we, as Christians, we've, we, so many parts and facets of the agricultural and food productive space needs to be taken over or at least influenced by us, by Christians. Uh, and, uh, and certainly that starts, you know, right out everyone's window at, in the garden or in the chicken yard. And it starts with a community, whether that's literal geographical community or that's your church community or your tribe. You know? That's awesome. I love that vision. That's exciting. Okay, so as Christians, we aren't worshipers of Gaia. Like this whole conversation, we've talked about how much we love the dirt and the earth and love thinking about food that the earth produces and that God produces. Um, but we don't worship the earth and we aren't liberal Green New Deal lovers or anything like that. But how do we have a balanced view or biblical view of the earth and the dirt and the water and the air? How do we keep that balance without swinging towards the liberal agenda? Oh, for sure. Well, in, in one sense, we exercise the one another's in how we take care of the earth. Um, again, God, God has been gracious in that he made the earth resilient, right? You can, you can burn the crud out of a field with nitrogen and it'll come back in three or four years. It'll be fine, right? So he's been gracious in that. But I think of one, one example, particularly egregious example, and rather ironic uh, is the necessity of, of rare earth minerals for uh, kind of this EV electric vehicle and battery craze that we have. Uh, these, sure, you know, everyone wants to say how much more efficient these vehicles are, how much cleaner they are, all things considered, but no one tends to talk about the, the open earth mine in Ethiopia or some mm -hmm. other world nation where, I mean, dozens of children dying per day in each mine, you know, moving 200 tons of material to get a few ounces of lithium or right. whatever, wow. whatever it is that we're at. It's, you know, so that's one particularly egregious example, right? I, I could, frankly, I could care less about the dirt in that sense. It's, I love my neighbor and I want them to uh, not die inside of mines. So right. that's why I'm going to be uh, poised against uh, a notion. Um, but we're also, again, that, that love of neighbor manifests itself in stewardship, right? We often in our camp and our groups, you know, we're talking about dominion and we have this dominion mandate and we are to take dominion and work the earth and make it productive. Uh, but it's important to still balance that with stewardship, right? This notion that it is mine now, but it is not mine later, right? This is, this belongs to someone else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of course it belongs to God, but it also belongs to whoever owns this land after me. Yeah. Uh, so I want to steward it. Well. This is, this is why, you know, I, I only a Christian, at least in, in their right mind could plant a tree, which <laughs> what, a weird, what a weird sentence, right? Yeah. But only a Christian could plant an oak tree because knowing that they're they're not going to benefit from it in fact it's going to take them away from other things they're going to have to tend to that and take care of it and by the time they die it might be 30 feet tall that just it seems absurd or should seem absurd to the world and uh, but that's that's an act of stewardship that not only is taking care of this you know micro ecosystem around it but also it's it's putting something in the ground that one day someone's going to harvest for mm -hmm. three, four, $5,000. So we have this balance of 
dominion taking, but we also have this balance, you know, you got to balance it with stewardship, take care of what's around us because it's not always going to be ours. Uh, you know, this is, that's why I recycle my motor oil instead of just dumping it out in the gravel drive. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I know that that's going to get locked up there and someone's going to have to deal with that down the road. But you no, know, the, your point of we don't worship Gaia is, is really imperative because that's, that is how the world looks at creation, right? We, all we are is we are a cog in this machine. We are a part of this singular living earth system called Gaia. That's their view. And, and so they, they look at it as we're just a small insignificant part of the system. And in fact, we're, we have a net negative impact on it. So we need to get rid of ourselves, right? We need less babies being born. We need lower populations overall. Um, but we know that to not be true. We, we are, we have this mandate. We're to be fruitful and multiply. We're to fill the earth and subdue it. And, and this idea, this very Gnostic idea that we, we are, we don't matter. Our flesh doesn't matter. It's just, you know, mother Gaia, you know, it's this wicked notion. And, and so many Christians have found themselves duped by it. And, you know, when they choose to have no kids, you know, mm -hmm. by choice, or when they, they choose to do whatever. Right. Um, and it's, yeah, it's because a lot of us have been duped by this mm -hmm. guy worship, by this idea that we're just a small and significant part of this system. And really Gaia, the, the earth mother is what's important. It's just absurd. And, and so many people are subject to that, whether they realize it or not. Yeah, it's really good. Have you read Gordon Wilson's A Different Shade of Green? I have not actually. I think you would really like it. I think talks, I would, yeah. He talks about like unhinged environmentalism isn't the answer, but also it's not ignorance and apathy either. So he just talks about the Christian's exactly. responsibility to fill the earth and subdue it. But anyways, it's really good. He also has the right and the dance, which is really yeah. fun with him and Indy Wilson. But um, okay, so yep. the, the last thing I want to ask you, because I thought it was really interesting and just a balanced perspective, you said in your talk, ask me my thoughts on processed food, you'll probably be surprised. And so afterwards, I asked you your thoughts on processed food. So anyways, throw it out there, because a lot of our listeners are moms. And of course, we're like, try not to eat the processed foods. But also, I thought your perspective was really helpful. Yeah, well, thanks. I, I guess so reminding reminding everyone listening right christ declared all foods clean no judgment if if you regularly eat processed foods uh so uh we we have to remember that whenever we have this conversation because it is really easy to either start to judge people or more often than not probably feel judged because as as hard as all of us are trying we probably all sneak in some T-Bell every now and again or have like a <laughs> lasagna in the freezer. Like it's okay. Right? <laughs> uh, well, all right. So the, I, I have to unveil my bias here. I, I didn't mention this earlier, but I, I work in the industrial food manufacturing space. This is what I do. This is my day job. I go to big food plants and I help them engineer things and operate in a clean environment and produce viable product and, and I fix their machines and that's what I do. So I really do have an affinity towards this industry because it is really neat. It's a really neat industry. And I wish everyone, you know, it's basically I live inside of the TV show, how it's made, you know, it, that's mm -hmm. what I get to see every day. So uh, I'm, I'm sensing just in, in the current environment amongst reformed people um, that uh I'm going to have to go on the defense a little bit more often of industrial food, because again, as I mentioned earlier, that pendulum swing, people are going hard right. overcorrection to, I've got to grow all of my own food. And I, there's so much that can happen there. And I don't want people to get burned out. I don't want people to be neglecting their other duties or, or fighting with their fan. Cause all of those things can happen whenever you farm too aggressively, trust me. So, uh, now, all right, so industrial food. I'm not gonna get into the health side of things that those arguments have been exhausted and everyone's made up their mind there and that's fine. Um, but I do wanna remind people or at least maybe help people adjust their perspective. Food, food is still under the curse, right? So the, the ground is gonna toil back against us, right? And processed food is often pretty bad for you, right? It toils against us pretty aggressively. Um, you know, I think of like our meat, right? Meat runs away. 
that's toiling against us. Uh, plants have defenses, right? Onions make you cry and, and jalapenos burn because they literally want to kill you. Uh, they don't want to be eaten. Uh, and uh, so it, our food works against us. It is toiling against us often. Uh, but the Lord in his goodness made our bodies such that we can handle that to an extent. We can handle a little bit of that working against us, right? We've got kidneys, we've got a liver, uh, we've got other parts of our system that can help us handle a, a not yet glorified diet. Um, so here's, here's my defense of industrial food. They, the majority of industrial food really starts like this, okay? Imagine a food, a foodstuffs like a, a tamales, right? Tamales are a great example because they're, they're really good. They're hard to make. <laughs> they are, uh, they are and really good. Most people, they're good. They're hard to make. And uh, some people, if you're so lucky, you've got somebody in, in your church or in your neighborhood who like has the recipe, right? And it's the tamale lady, right? We went from tomato lady, now we're on the tamale <laughs> lady. And uh, it, it would be wonderful if once every two or three months, all the ladies could get together, they could work together, labor together, make a bunch of tamales and put a few hundred in the freezer. Like that would be ideal, but not everyone has that, right? But what most people do have, if you live in a town of like a thousand people, there's probably a van that drives around and has window painted on it, you know, tamales for sale with a phone number. Well, most food plants start like that because you've got some gal riding around really just grinding it out, selling tamales out of a van or something. And then eventually demand increases to such a point that a factory is opened. And then now we've got 50 or hundred people are employed and now we've got distribution and we've got a contract with Walmart and now everyone in the world can eat so-and-so's tamales. And that's really what a lot of industrial food was and has been. Like even up, even before World War II, that's, we had industrial food and that's what it was. And it's an amazing thing. And we need more Christians to do that, right? We need more Christians that make really good beer or make really good bread or do whatever. We need them to really get a bug and, and start to push that product, develop that product, start a factory so that we can take over this industrial food space. Now, where to be skeptical of and what processed foods I would advise people to reject are going to be those that the government is incentivizing us to eat. You should automatically be skeptical of those things, right? Either the government is incentivizing it or subsidizing it, or lobbyists have to bribe politicians in order to keep it on the shelf, right? That those should be our red flags that we're looking for, right? Twinkie, the Twinkie, as an example, 31 ingredients, 17 of them are government subsidized. Wow. And so we, that's the food that I want people to be skeptical of and to be concerned about, right? But just, but it's, it's an awesome and God glorifying thing that I can go to the store and I can get uh, San Marzano tomatoes out of a can, right? Something that 80 years ago, a redneck in Missouri would never even dream of having. I can have that whenever I want. And that's an awesome thing but I don't want us to overreact and, and lump all processed food together. Understands processed food, industrial food. It's an amazing thing. It affords us lots of experiences that billions of people before us never had the chance to experience, but still be cautious, be careful, protect your family, avoid those things that, you know, every, every mother, it seems has done all of her own research on all the adverse health effects and has, has come to their decision. So, you know, operate according to your conviction, you know, do, do right by your family and, and take care of them. Even if that means keeping a Stouffer's lasagna in, in the freezer, no, no judgment there. It's all good. <laughs> right. I think that, yeah, I think that's helpful and balanced. Um, I always think of the scripture, uh, God's made, oh, I'm going to butcher it. God's made clean our food because of Thanksgiving. And that's like a really paraphrased version of it. <laughs> I, we'll I should have wrote it down. We'll That'll be that in the show notes. notes. Yeah. But I think just remembering that like God is sovereign over what happens to the food after we eat it in our body and the processes of our body. We shouldn't fear food. We should 
receive it with Thanksgiving and not sacrifice fellowship for the sake of a high food standard or anything like that. But I've told our ladies at our Titus two class, like have an aim that you aspire towards with food, but yet know that people around you are more important than that, than that. Um, so like not sacrificing hospitality or fellowship because of it. So yeah. anyways, it so, was, go ahead. I was going to say, because something amazing happens there with this the mentioning hospitality. Uh, yeah, if it, let's say you're a, you know, hot topic right now is the seed oil. So let's say that you're you're cutting out all these seed oils, but somebody invites you over from your church to come have food with them. Your last concern should be whether they cooked it with vegetable oil or with right. the towel, right? Yeah. Do not concern yourself with it. And then the opposite starts to happen. Because you're with these people in your community, because you're with your neighbors, because you're with people in your church, they're starting to learn about you more and they're starting to love you. And then they're going to realize that they can love you better by cooking in a way that is more hospitable. Mm -hmm. You know, we've, we've got, again, just the food allergies and concerns that we, that we're seeing rise up all over the place. And just about every family in our church, somebody's got something going on. And it's because we're regularly exercising hospitality that we're now able to adapt and love them better and show them more hospitality by cooking in a way that they can enjoy the fullness of everything that we've prepared. And, and so that's, a, a, that's a great point that, yeah, have your convictions, but, but people are more important, love your people. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. And it's almost like there's a greater bodily protection in being a part of the body of Christ and having all these people around you than only avoiding seed oils. Like yeah, it, it's absolutely. important for us as humans to have each other. And, and that's of more greater importance than it would be just a, just of avoiding a certain red dye or something like that. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, anyways, it was really, really fascinating talking to you, Ian. Thank you so much for making time for this and tell people how they can find more stuff from you. Yeah. So I'm on Twitter mostly as a lurker, but I'm there. Uh, goodness. I don't even know what the handle is. Just search for Ian Garris and I'm sure I'll pop up. Uh, but I also periodically blog over at thechristianagrarian.com, and uh, that's where I'm blogging on everything from how to butcher pigs to how to love your neighbor to how should we respond to government tyranny as it relates to food. So I very especially, diverse. I especially liked your post on uh, like popularizing the wet nurse. <laughs> I was like, that's very oh, true. Yeah, that I was just telling Jared last night, I was like, <laughs> if I ever died, please get a girl from our church to nurse our baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that, yeah that was I, that was among my more controversial ones but certainly it was it was fun and I'm, I was happy to write it yeah it was really good it was really good and we actually have a lady at our church that has like an overabundance of milk and has uh fed like three babies from our church because of her oh, yeah. abundance so it's been awesome that's great yeah so what, what was the name of it again the christian agrarian yeah the christian agrarian.com cool. all right well thank you so much ian and thanks for listening everybody yeah thanks for having me Thank you for listening to the Fruitful and Fearless podcast. For more information, you can go to fruitfulandfearless.com and make sure and check out the new features and memberships. And if you want to sign up and support the show, please consider doing so.